From the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, this is Road to Resilience. I'm John Earl. Each episode, we bring you interviews with resilient people and scientists who study resilience. Since our last episode dropped, coronavirus has upended life here in New York City. The streets are quiet, schools and restaurants are closed, and non-essential gatherings have been banned. Everyone here is figuring out how to adapt to this new reality. They're coping with lost wages and social distancing and extreme anxiety about the future. Here on the podcast, we're going to do our best to help. Moving forward, we'll be exploring what it means to be resilient in the coronavirus era, gathering tips from a wide range of people, tips that you can use to stay resilient right now. You'll hear from frontline health workers, psychologists, faith leaders, students, and everyday New Yorkers who are modeling resilience. Wherever people are coming up with creative ways to cope, we'll be there. We hope that these episodes will help you feel more grounded and hopeful. We're going to begin this series with an interview with Dr. Brendan Carr. He's chair of emergency medicine here at Mount Sinai, which means he plays a key role in overseeing emergency rooms at our eight hospitals. In this interview, recorded over FaceTime, he walks us through the hard decisions he's facing and reflects on what it means to cope and lead in a pandemic. It's a sobering conversation. Dr. Carr does not sugarcoat how serious the situation is. But it also gave me hope. Hearing him describe the smart, dedicated people fighting the disease makes me feel like I'm in good hands. I hope it does for you, too. Take us into your day-to-day right now. Um, now that things have really changed and ramped up here in New York City and at Mount Sinai um, with coronavirus. So the day-to-day is uh, long days, early days in the operations center, focused on a list of priorities that have been generated as requests come in broken out to different groups. There needs to be a clinical policy group. There needs to be HR. There needs to be folks from communications and folks from environmental health and security and uh, logistics and operations. And so to put all these people in a room allows you to make decisions in a relatively nimble manner. You think about it very much as like a logistical problem, which it is. I guess what I'm wondering about is like, what is this like for you just like as a person going through this and how are you coping personally with what I imagine is a lot of pressure? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's nice of you to ask. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the pressure comes from a couple different places, I guess I would say. The first is that I feel like there are a lot of people that I need to not disappoint. Uh, let, me, let me start and tell you a story. One of, one of my docs who is not allowed to work uh, because she is self-quarantined was reaching out to text me and to apologize that she can't be there helping all of us to to take care of the, the the increasing volumes of patients that we're seeing, and so you know it's it's just knowing that that is the way that folks that are on the front line tick um, makes it really important. Makes it it feels extremely important to me not to disappoint them. Mm-hmm. Um, I know how hard they're working. They're on the front line. They're scared. This is a scary time. They have families. They have kids. Mm. What do you say to a colleague? like that it reaches out like what's your do you have a message for frontline workers who are stressed scared anxious from my perspective it really is just to remind them that they're extraordinary and that i'm grateful to them and that the 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 families uh, of the people whose lives they will save are grateful to them what are the challenges i mean looking forward like where are we right now in this and what do the next few months look like for you you know, I got, I'm, I'm really grateful that we got as serious as we did about planning so early on. 
And that, that credit goes to a, a broad group of people who started to have these conversations and finally said, okay, it's, it's, time to, it's time to start making the hard decisions. What's the next one coming up? The next hard decision? The series of next hardest decisions are going to be enormously dependent upon what we do um, as a society to, to decrease spread. The social distancing is an enormous, enormously important piece of this first line of defense, right? The public are the first line of defense, and the healthcare system is the very final line of defense. Once people are sick enough to need the healthcare system to, to take care of them, the decisions that are going to come our way that are difficult are going to be, um, are, there are going to be many of them. Hmm. The framework that I lean on just because of my background and where I come from is an enormous body of literature that is called Crisis Standards of Care. And the Crisis Standards of Care helps us to understand and articulate a pivot from conventional standards of care through contingency standards of care to crisis standards. So, you know, we all know what a conventional standard is. You use this device um, for this procedure, and then you dispose of it, and you get a new one for the next procedure. An example of a contingency standard might be that you use that device, and you don't dispose of it because you're running short of them, so you put it in the autoclave, and you clean it appropriately, and you reuse it. These are not, these are, you know, people write about these often in the international setting. These are not conversations that we have in the United States. That's very sobering to hear that. Uh, yeah, that those, kinda, that those decisions yeah. are coming. And they're coming in a lot of different ways. They're coming in the policy-making way, but they're also coming in a really personal way. They're coming in, uh, they're coming to individuals on the front lines who are going to have to, who are going to have to think differently about what they're doing. And maybe maybe we're wrong, and maybe the numbers aren't overwhelming, and maybe we fix all of the all of the bedding and supply chain challenges. But if anybody's reading the literature from Italy, and it's a very different healthcare system, but the literature from Italy tells clear stories of sort of making artificial thresholds. You're talking about treat this person, not that person, kind of decisions. Yeah, I, I am. I'm talking yeah. about that, and we all hope we never get there. But it would be it would be irresponsible not to not to think about it. You know, I, spent, I, my, I trained in I trained in West Philadelphia, and unlike New York City, West Philadelphia has an enormous, or Philadelphia actually has an enormous firearm problem. And um, you watch a lot of people die. You watch a lot of people survive heroically. And although, you know, in pleasant company, we often don't talk about it, when people, when multiple people show up at the same time who are critically injured on a much smaller scale than what we're talking about is about to happen, people make decisions. You make a decision about whether, about likelihood of survivability and who's first to get intervention, um, X, Y, or Z. I mean, I can't, I just want to return to something I've asked you before, like when you're facing these sorts of issues in the setting right now, it's like, how do you stay level-headed and just keep making smart, rational decisions under the circumstances? Yeah, I mean, the only way out is through. Mm -hmm. is, is I guess, you know, what I keep thinking, there's not, I don't know what the alternative is. A lot of people who, who feel the weight and who are leaning on each other to make sure that we get this as right as we can get it. Yeah, I know it's inadequate. And, you know, maybe we're early in this and there's another three months of this coming and maybe I will have 
you know, better answers once the, uh, once the adrenaline's gone. But right now it just, it just feels like a burden to get it right without a whole lot of time to. You've talked about leadership um, and you've talked about the team effort. What does good leadership look like right now? I think a lot about allowing people to rise to the level that you know that they can. We're unbelievably lucky. I work at a place where everybody's brilliant and, it, and it's dumbfounding. And there's all of these folks who, if you just if you just let them run, they will do extraordinary things. And I guess I think that that's a lot of what this is. That's a lot of what leadership is about. It's about recognizing the talent um, around you and allowing the talent around you to 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 do the job because boy, they know how to do the job. Is there anything that is undercovered or that's new or that you really think is not being represented accurately and that people need to understand? Yeah, thanks. A couple. I mean, you know, the the first is the surreal disconnect between the things that maybe I should start by saying it is totally possible that I have lost perspective. And uh, and I know that. Um, But it is pretty surreal to leave um, to take a break from, you know, trying to sort through these things and to, to you know, to, to, to get home, to get a couple hours of sleep and to see people out and about with each other, you know, kids on playgrounds and not think about the fact that we're not doing enough and we're not doing it because it's not proximate enough. You know, if it were if it were happening now, we would recognize the importance of not spreading this to each other. Um, well, if it were happening now in a visible way, but it's, you know, 30 or 40 days away. But I think, the, you know, another story that I worry is not recognized enough is, is how many people are working so hard to, to respond to this. You know, most, I, you know, I, you watch the news and it's about things that seem important, you know, but who, who, how do I get a test? And can you believe it took this long? For me to get a test, um, you know, there is an incredulous a series of incredulous stories in in prominent um, journal outlets that sort of talk about how hard it is for people who are well to get a test that, from the doctor's perspective, changes absolutely nothing about the way that I care for them. And I get it. I get it from the patient perspective that people are concerned and they want certainty in the face of uncertainty and they are afraid and they believe that a test is going to tell them whether or not they're going to get sick from the virus, but it doesn't. Um, it tells them if they've been infected with the virus, and we know that, as I said before, 80% of people are, have really mild symptoms. If, and if we knew the 5% who were going to get critically ill or the 1% or 2% that were going to die, that would be that would be a different story if we had that test. We don't have that test. We have a test that tells you whether or not you've been um, infected with it. So I guess, you know, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to see all of that focus and to not be a little bit uh, frustrated with the idea that we're not getting told the story of all the people within private sector health care, within public sector health care, on the front lines at state governments, federal governments that have spent their lives planning for something like this. You know, I know more about it than most because of my time inside of the federal government, but, you know, pandemic influenza plans have been around for a very long time. Stockpiled supplies as a part of the strategic national stockpile are very carefully thought through all of the time. Um, you know, the enormous assets of the United States being brought to bear to respond to this um, should 
should get and they deserve um, a, a, a good narrative, a good explanation so that the American public can know how many people are trying really hard to keep us safe. Well, we will do our very small part um, to make sure that message gets out there. And thank you so much again for, for taking the time to talk with us. It's, it is very, very nice to talk to you guys. Thanks so much. Dr. Brendan Carr is the chair of emergency medicine for the Mount Sinai Health System. That's all for this episode of Road to Resilience. We're a production of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. This episode was produced by Katie Ullman, Nikki Hudson, and me, John Earl, with help from Alana Nikravesh. Lucia Lee is our executive producer. We'll be back as soon as we can with more episodes. But in the meantime, how are you coping? We're gathering creative coping strategies for future episodes, and we'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcasts at mountsinai.org. Until next time, thanks for listening, and be well.